Gamers Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there. And welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Dili Hussein. Today's guest is a living legend, and that is by no stretch of a mile an exaggeration. He is a celebrated and erudit, an esteemed academic, political thinker, uh, an analyst, an expert in linguistics. Um, his accolades are much longer than Santa's list, but I cannot do no justice in this mere introduction. He is none other than Professor Noam Chomsky. Professor Chomsky, welcome to the Blood Brothers podcast. Very pleased to be with you. Thank you very much for giving us your time in your very busy schedule, sir. Oh, yes. Interviews all morning today. Now, just before I proceed with today's podcast, uh, it is a norm within the Islamic tradition that when we address those who are our seniors, whether it be by age or by knowledge, we don't call them by their first name. Are you okay with me calling you Professor Chomsky? Absolutely. Fantastic. Wicked. Right. Let me set the tone uh, for today's podcast um, I want you to imagine that you are on a boat ride uh, Professor Chomsky uh, It's a seven day boat ride And you need to take along with you Some companions to keep you company in this boat ride So I'm going to mention to you Two individuals You have to pick one of the two individuals Is that clear? Fine Let's go Plato or Aristotle to join you on this spot ride? Yes. Well, that's hard. They were quite different. I guess I'd pick Aristotle. I like okay. his contributions. My wife doesn't like it. She said I should have picked Plato. Bless her. That's <laughs> so tie between the two of us. Okay. Prophet Jesus or Prophet Muhammad? Jesus or? Muhammad. Muhammad. I can't make that choice. Once you get to that level, there's no choices. Immanuel Kant or Friedrich Nietzsche? Kant for me. Jo John Stuart Mill or John Locke? John Locke. Karl Marx or Adam Smith? That they're so different, it's hard to choose. I would probably say Marx. Lenin or Trotsky? No, not particularly enthusiastic about either of them, but Trotsky. <laughs> okay. Michael Foucault or Jean-Francois Jean Leitard? Sorry, I couldn't hear. Can you say them again? For cult or light leotard? Foucault. or? Uh, Jean-Francois Leotard. Leotard? Yes. I suppose Foucault, but not with great enthusiasm. <laughs> um, Ed Said or John L. Esposito? Ed Said but I'm biased because he was a very close friend. Norman Finkelstein or Jordan Peterson? 
That's not even a question. (laughs) (laughs) Julian Assange or Edward Snowden? Well, they both are... I can't really choose. They're both very important in different ways. And Julian Assange, as you know, they're both punished. Snowden's punished by most probably permanent exile. Assange is being brutally tortured right now, as he has been for seven years and is facing probable life in prison. Last but not least, Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn? Well, I highly respect both of them. Sanders, I suspect, but not so much because of his policies, as but as because of his ability to weather harsh condemnation and efforts at repression directed at both of them. Corbyn is a too nice a person, not a fighter. He didn't fight back. Sanders. Okay. Well, it's interesting to know how that seven-day boat journey would have been with all these individuals. Thank you for, uh, for, your, for your responses. Um, there are so many topics, Professor Chomsky, which our viewership and our listeners would have wanted for me to discuss with you today. There's so many things. Um, the Arab-Israel conflict, the Palestinian resistance in light of ongoing Israeli aggression, American imperialism... Um, so many things, so many things our viewers and listeners would have liked for me to discuss with you. But today I have chosen the topic of the nation state. Now, the reason why I have chosen the topic of the nation state is because within many Islamic Muslim intellectual circles, there is a lot of discussion and has been for the last century that the nation state is a polity which has been imposed on the developing world, the Muslim-majority world, via colonialism. And in fact, that the polity of a nation-state is distinctly European. How true is this, Professor Chomsky? Well, the nation-state is a fairly recent development. It's not purely European. Japan is a nation-state. But... uh, uh, for most of the world, it's uh, been imposed by European imperialism. You take a look at the borders of what are called countries in Africa. Uh, they often straight lines. They have almost nothing to do with the populations. Uh, take, say, Iraq. Iraq was uh, welded together by the British as part of the British-French imperialist effort to organize the Middle East. So Iraq, just a second, I have to get rid of a dog, which is- No, it's absolutely fine. Down, Gus, down, 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 Gus, down. This is wicked. Okay, they're all kind of problems, nation states and dogs. So the nation, I mean, take say Iraq, I started to talk about it. It put together 
groups that a variety of tribes had nothing to do with each other, sometimes didn't even speak the same language. Uh, it was done for the purposes of British imperialism. So the British wanted the oil fields in the north, so they incorporated them in Iraq. Could have just as well gone into Turkey if uh, power structures had been different. Uh, the British wanted to ensure that the new country, that the country of Iraq that they were forming would not have too much independence. Mm. So they wanted to block its easy access to the Gulf. So therefore they created the Principality of Kuwait, carved it out, figuring that can be under British control and uh, it'll keep Iraq from getting easy, easy access to the Gulf for its own development. Uh, similar things all over the world. Syria, take the Levant, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine. Uh, those borders, borders are almost totally meaningless. Actually, I saw that myself 70 years ago. I happened to be, spent some time working in a kibbutz in Israel as a college student. And uh, I went hiking once in the Northern Galilee, mm. you know, like a young person does. And uh, as I was hiking along one evening, uh, a Jeep pulled up behind me and guy got out of the Jeep and started yelling to me. He said, come back in Hebrew. And I came back, asked him, what's the problem? He said, you're in Lebanon. There was no border. Wow. And now, of course, it's bristling with armaments. But then it's just one continuous area, the Galilee. You know? mm doesn't make sense to put a border. And you take a look elsewhere in the world, it's the same. Right now I'm living in Arizona, not too far from the Mexican border. Why am I in the United States and not in Mexico? Well, it's because uh, uh, in the mid 19th century, uh, the United States launched a war against Mexico, an aggressive war, no pretext. General Grant, who was president later, just fought in the war, said it was the most wicked war in history. Uh, just in order to conquer uh, Texas, Arizona, but most of the West, California, uh, partly in the hope of turning it into slave states so they could enslave more blacks in the most hideous system of slavery in history. So now I'm now in. Arizona, not in Mexico. Sometimes when I'm giving it talks, I call it occupied Mexico. Wow. What it is. And you look around the world, that's what the borders are. Uh, Europe itself was the most violent place in the world for centuries, while the countries, the various factions, religious groups, other groupings in Europe tried to establish national borders. Uh, the only reason, actually the main reason there hasn't been another war since 1945 is that uh, uh, Western science reached the point where it devised the means to destroy everything. So the next time you, France and Germany continue with their favorite sport of slaughtering each other, everything's going to be wiped out. Okay, that's the way nation states were established. We could say the same all around the world, but they're there. 
you can't eliminate them. And getting rid of them has its own problems. Uh, the, you... the major problems we face in the world are global, international. And we face problems of global warming, serious, maybe lethal problem of environmental catastrophe, global. Pandemic, global. Elimination of nuclear weapons, which is crucial for survival, global. So all of these problems have to be handled on an international scale. On the other hand, under existing social arrangements, when too much power is taken away from the nation and placed in an international organization, it can have harmful effects. We see that in Europe. One of the serious problems in Europe is that the European Union, as it was designed, had both positive and negative features. Among the positive features were the Schengen Agreement, which allow people to travel freely from one European country to another to work in some other country and so on. That's a generally positive feature. One of the negative features is that major decisions were taken out of the hands of national governments and placed in the hands of an unelected bureaucracy in yeah. Brussels yeah. called Troika. Unelected European Commission, uh, the uh, European Central Bank, obviously unelected, International Monetary Fund, not elected. That's the Troika sitting in Brussels. They make the major decisions to which countries have to adhere. It's been a very unfortunate situation. It's led to sharp deterioration in democratic functioning. It's part of the reason for the anger, you know, resentment that you see all over Europe, the rise of uh, extremist right-wing parties are trying to capitalize this and so on. Mm. There are others trying to counter it. So there is a transnational European organization, DM25 it's called, initiated by Yanis Varoufakis, former Greek finance minister, very fine economist. Now, this is a transnational organization in Europe, running candidates and elections and so on, trying to save the parts of the European Union that make sense and are beneficial, and trying to remedy and overcome the parts that are very harmful, like what I described. Yeah. Finding similar problems everywhere. I mean, the African Organization of Africans, the of African Union could be an organization that deals with uh, regional problems in a helpful and sensible way, and sometimes tries to be. Actually, very, if you look at the cases, they're very revealing. So take the NATO invasion of Libya, uh, initiated by France, Britain went along, then the United States joined. It's destroyed Libya, turned Libya into, Libya was a, you know, plenty of problems, but it was a wealthy, functioning society. Devastated, now in the hands of warring militias, tearing it to shreds, 
uh, outpouring of arms, Tuareg tribes, which had control of the arms, are sending them all over Africa to overthrow governments, the Mali government recently. Uh, why? Because of the NATO invasion. Well, the, organ the OAU at the beginning had proposals, sensible proposals mm. for negotiation, mediation, settlement of the conflict. Could have worked. Would have been very healthy, not only for Libya, but for all of Africa. But they were blocked. The NATO powers wanted to get in, take control themselves, and bomb, doing their thing they're famous for, bombing and destroying. Okay? Libya's a wreck. Large parts of Africa are a wreck. This is not ancient history. This has been going on for a thousand years. I mean... I mean, it takes me nicely into the next question I wanted to ask. It's a prevalent argument. There's a prevalent argument that the nation state has been a far more successful project in the Western world, namely Europe, Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, that these countries, these aforementioned regions, you know, they have far more successful examples and manifestations of the nation state but specifically talking towards the demographic of our listeners and viewers, when you look towards the Middle East and North Africa or parts of South Asia, you know, there's all this, this argument, the developing world, whether it's democracy, but we're talking specifically about nation state. How true do you think that statement is? Do you think the nation state model has been more successful in the Western world than, let's say, Middle East and North Africa or the Muslim majority world? Well, depends what you mean by successful. How would we measure success? How do we measure a success of a nation state? Well, let's, let's take the success of the nation states, okay? The most powerful nation state is the United States by far. Yeah. How did the United States become a powerful state? By violent aggression from its first moment. There's a lot of talk about in the United States today about how we're involved in endless wars. We have to get out of the endless wars. They're referring to Afghanistan, uh, Somalia. Those aren't the endless wars. The endless war started in 1783 when the United States was founded. One of the reasons, main reasons for the American Revolution was that the British uh, put a bound on expansion of the colonies, wouldn't let them expand beyond the Appalachian Mountains, the eastern range of mountains. The country beyond was in the hands of the Indian nations. They were nations, Indian nations. The colonists didn't want that. They wanted to conquer, destroy, and exterminate them and steal their lands. Okay? The United States has been at war virtually every year since its founding. Through the 19th century, the wars were the British were kicked out finally, so that barrier was gone. They immediately started invading the, the nations, the Indian nations. Wars of extermination, literally. In fact, the term extermination was used, destroyed them almost entirely. Now the remnants are confined to reservations. Near me, for example, was an Indian reservation, very poor. That's the it was uh, and that included uh, the invasion of Mexico, which uh, uh, conquered half of Mexico, 
that's the southwest and the west. Okay. For whom is that a success? Success for the conquerors. It's not a success for the vanquished. Okay. Absolutely. That's true. Almost everywhere you look. Let's go to the most powerful, the most probably the most efficient Western capitalist state, Germany. Now, Germany was put together pretty recently. And Germany became a nation in the 19th century. Yep. Conquest, as the Prussians managed to extend their power. Has Germany been a success since? Well, was Germany a success during my childhood when Hitler took power? No. Was it a success for whom? For the conquerors, for for the des- for Hitler and the Nazis, it was a success for them. I mean, this question of success, just it's too complicated. You can't say yes or no. Now let's go back to the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, for a thousand years, the North, that includes Russia, the North and the West have been fighting a war against Islam, which is most of the global South. Now, there's a wonderful book about it by a great historian, a friend of mine, William Polk, who just died very recently. It's called Crusaders and Jihadis. It's about the thousand year war of the North, which of course includes Russia. That's how the small Muscovy Eunuch duchy extended yep. for large parts of the Muslim world. Yep. The West, which has been carrying out a war against the Muslim world for also for almost a thousand years. Well, okay, when you're colonized and destroyed, it's very hard to have efficient nation states. Uh, you go back uh, to the late mid 19th century, uh, Western Africa was in approximately the same state of development as Japan. Uh, good historians have written about this. Uh, Basil Davidson, one of the great African historians. Also African historians themselves have written about it. It was, a, it was unifying, uh, it was developing, it was wealthy, could have gone on forward. About the same state as Japan. There was one fundamental difference between them. Africa was colonized. Japan was the one part of the global south that was not colonized. And it's the one part that has what we call a successful nation state. Mm. Is that just accident? If you know the history, you know it's not accident. It's not. It's the effect of successful European nation states which destroyed Africa okay, and blocked African development. Same in the Middle East region. I don't have to run through the history for you. You know it very well. Of course. So yes, when they're under, uh, there have been many efforts in, say, in Egypt to try to free themselves from Western colonial rule. Early 1920s, yep. Nasser, Arab Spring, all crushed. Not destroyed. There's plenty left that can build on, but beaten down. Actually, if you look at Egypt and the United States, take Egypt and the United States. To compare them sounds ridiculous. In the 1820s, to compare them was very realistic. They were very similar. Mm. Both Egypt and the United States were developing societies. 
uh, they both had ample resources of cotton. Cotton was the oil of the early industrial revolution. It's what made it work. It's mm. the basis for manufacturing, for finance, for retail, all through the 19th century. Egypt had a lot of it. The United States had a lot of it. Very different conditions. The United States had it under a vicious, brutal system of slavery, the worst in human history. Egypt, it was peasants in a quasi-feudal society. Uh, both were uh, developing a national project. Egypt under Muhammad Ali, as the United States under the Hamiltonian model of independent development. Well, why are they different? Because of, primarily because of a country called England. England, colonies in the United States had freed themselves from British rule. The Egyptians hadn't. Britain still controlled the Eastern Mediterranean, had extensive control over Egypt. Uh, Palmerston, leading British statesman, made it very clear and said so that they would never allow an independent Egypt. France joined in as well. Uh, Egypt was a rich agricultural country. That's why Napoleon conquered it, because of its rich agricultural resources uh, that could have developed. The difference was the same as between West Africa and, and Japan. So the development of some meant the crushing of others. Okay, and that's continued. As I said, in the early 20s, there was an Egyptian attempt to free themselves from British domination. It was beaten down. Case of Nasser, it was a war, uh, uh, 1967 war, which uh, essentially crushed. There was a war between radical Islam centered in Saudi Arabia, secular nationalism centered in Egypt. In fact, they were literally at war. Recall there was a war in the Yemen with mostly proxy forces, but a lot of the Egyptian army was there. Mm -hmm. uh, 67 came along, a Western settler colonial society, Israel, uh, had the technological uh, military resources uh, to, to tilt the balance in favor of radical Islam against secular nationalism. The United States, like Britain before it, has tended pretty consistently to support radical Islam as opposed to secular nationalism. It continues right at this moment. It's part of the reason why uh, uh, you may have seen a comical report this morning saying that some right-wing Norwegian uh, parliamentarian uh, nominated Donald Trump for the Nobel Prize. Yeah, yeah, I did. That was quite comical. Okay, that's supporting radical Islam against secular nationalism. Wouldn't it, I mean, Professor Professor Chomsky, wouldn't it be fair to say if we look at the likes of, uh, Hos, if we look at the likes of Hosni Mubarak, if we look at some of the most despotic Arab regimes, um, they never claimed to be of the radical Islam uh, spectrum. They were ardent secular um, secularists. If we look at the likes of Hosni Mubarak, or if we look at uh, Ben Ali of Tunisia, if we looked at um, you know of, of other uh, dictators which the West, namely America, have favoured, 
um, they ha- do. They have tended to have been secular um, secularists. Well, it's a mixture, and sometimes the secular forces turned into harsh dictatorships, which the United States supported. Other times they've uh, been uh, they've been taken over by radical Islam, mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia, Gulf family dictatorships, UAE. Those are the base for U.S. power. They're the ones the U.S. strongly supports against secular nationalists of the Nasser type. Okay. Are you suggesting then that America, namely America, as it is the leading superpower, one could still argue, um, that is quite indifferent to who the proxy state is, that whether it's quote-unquote radical Islam or, con- or, or conservative types of Saudi Arabia or the secular type of Hosni Mubarak and Ben Ali, that America, so long as its uh, hegemony is in place and intact, it's quite, it's, it's quite indifferent as to who it favours. All they have to do is be subordinate to US power. Okay. They can have any regime they want. But it's been the case, typically, Britain as well, that secular nationalism has often been more of an opposing force mm. to imperial power than radical Islam has been. And radical Islam goes off in its own direction. When the term radical Islam is used, it's a spectrum, isn't it? On the one hand, you have Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And on the same spectrum, you'll have the Muslim Brotherhood. Right? So... Just for the sake of clarity, when you're referring to radical Islam, what exactly are you referring to? What I'm referring to is the fact that I said to be, what I said at the beginning is that the United States, like England before it, has tended to support radical Islam against secular nationalism. Okay. And there's a reason for that. Secular nationalism, by and large, has been more independent and has attempted to move out of the control of Western power. Tended. It's not 100%. So let's take Al-Qaeda. The United States supported them, helped create them, in fact, in the 1980s, uh, when it was uh, overthrowing, when it was... uh, uh, trying to uh, defeat Russia. The the goal of supporting Al-Qaeda was not that the United States supported radical Islam. So they wanted, as they put it officially, to kill Russians. That was the official goal for the support for the U.S. effort to bring together radical Islamic groups from all over the world, including what turned into Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, for the official purpose of killing Russian soldiers. That was the directive that came from the CIA headquarters in Islamabad, from the head of the the guy who was running the operations. So yes, they supported radical Islam, but not because they liked radical Islam, because it was serving a global purpose. The same with supporting Saudi Arabia happens. That's where all the oil is. Mm. Uh, as long as they're a pillar of U.S. policy in the region, U.S. will support them. I just want to get your thoughts on the following examples. How would you then respond to the Taliban 
in Afghanistan or the AKP in Turkey or the Freedom and Justice Party under um, it, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt where there has been various examples where conservative quote-unquote Islamist parties or governments have posed some concern to the US and, and the West? Sometimes. If, when they are subordinate to US power, they're fine. When they oppose US power, they're wrong. Same with the secular groups. But that's why I stress the word tendency. Mm. There is a long-term tendency for the secular nationalist groups to become more independent. That's been true throughout the whole period of British imperialism, which is why the British tended to support them. And it's been true mostly during the period when the U.S. took it over. And right now happens to be a very mixed, complex moment with all sorts of different forces. Uh, but uh, that has been the tendency throughout the peer world, and it's led, it's been, it set the basis for much of, which, much of what is happening. Okay. The 67 war was crucial in the development of Arab nationalism. Mm. Nasser was, well, not saying I'm in love with Nasser, but a lot of, plenty of criticism, plenty of things to criticize, but he was the symbol and the center of rising Arab nationalism made an effort to get together with Syrian secular nationalism that broke down, could have picked up again. Egypt's an influential force in the Muslim world. Uh, it was stopped by the 67 war in a victory for Saudi Arabia with US backing. Of course, strong US backing. In fact, the, that war changed lots of things, not just for Arab nationalism, which was a serious blow, but also for U.S.-Israeli relations. And before that, U.S.-Israeli relations had been reasonably close, but not unusual in international affairs. Yeah. After 67, they become something totally different and unknown in international affairs. U.S.-Israeli relationship is unique. Other uh, Israel's so you're saying this so you're saying the six day war of nineteen sixteen seven was a significant turning point for it, for US Israel relations? Totally changed US policy. And not only in policy mm. normal support for Israel, but uh, in fact not only the six day war, but also the next event, uh, the crushing of Black September in nineteen seventy, uh, there was a sort struggle in, in Jordan, as you remember, uh, the, uh, the Jordanian regime was crushing the Palestinians. Syria made some moves to try to protect the Palestinians from destruction. But the United States could not intervene at the time. It was all tied up in Indochina, and the country was in flames over the Indochina war. The U.S. could not intervene. Mm. Israel intervened. It's performed a great service to the United States, mobilized troops, uh, compelled Syria to back off. That was a great, another great uh, contribution to U.S. power, just as the 67 war was. Mm. U.S. aid to Israel quadrupled at that point in response to Israel's service to U.S. power. Then 
a system was established to control the region based on what are called three pillars, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iran was of course under the Shah, and Israel. Uh, they were theoretically at war, but that was pure theory. In fact, they were very closely integrated. The relations between Israel and the Shah became completely public, shocking everyone with their intensity after mm -hmm. the Shah was overthrown. Very, very, probably everybody in the top Israeli political echelon traveled up and back to Tehran under the Shah. They were technically at war. All kind of close relations developed. The Israeli-Saudi relations were more subtle, just as they are between, have been between uh, Israel and the United Arab Emirates for many years. Yeah. They shared many goals. They had some interactions, but theoretically they were at war. Now that was the basis for U.S. power in the region. And it uh, relied primarily, notice that it was both a radical Islamic state, Saudi Arabia, and a secular state, Iran. But they were both subordinate to U.S. power, so it was okay. Interesting. Uh, Professor Chomsky, when you travel the breadth of the Muslim world, all the way from Morocco to Indonesia, as north as Chechnya to as south as Tanzania, millions of Muslims still positively talk about the notion of a caliphate. A caliphate which was part of Islamic history for nearly four the best part of 1400 years it was a polity which muslims believe was left to them by the prophet muhammad and of course the word caliphate let's put isis aside let's put al-qaeda aside let's put these kind of groups aside it is no it is not unheard of to go any part of the muslim world today and you will find many many people fondly talking about a caliphate why cannot Arab states or Muslim states come together like the Europeans have or like other um, countries have as, as regional powers? What is, why can't the Muslims have a caliphate if we wanted one via, you know, if, if this was something which reflected our cultural, religious, uh, uh, you know, values and morals and so forth? And obviously one of the biggest propaganda message of the war on terror was the emergence of a caliphate. So I want to ask you, how real of a threat was the notion of a caliphate to the US? Um, the US, uh, right now, there's actually one contender for that position, Erdogan. That's clearly what he's aiming at. He wants to restore something like the Ottoman Empire with the center and uh, Istanbul, and him being the successor of the caliphate, but the obstacles to that are pretty obvious. Can we can we hear can we hear some of the what are the obstacles? Can we hear it? So, what are some of the obstacles? Well, take a look at Libya, where Turkish and uh, uh, Gulf Arab forces are fighting each other with proxies. Mm. Saudi Arabia, Gulf dictatorships are obvious obstacles. It's not obviously not going to bring in Iran. 
CIA world. It's uh, the nationalist forces are opposed to it. The international forces are opposed to it. But let's think for a moment about the Ottoman Empire, the last time there was a caliphate. Yeah. And it was very brutal in many ways. There were plenty of things wrong with it. But there were also some positive aspects to it. There were. So, for example, in the Levant, yeah. people were very much left alone. The Greeks could run their affairs. The Armenians could run their affairs. Uh, the uh, Sunni group could run their affairs. They, partly out of incompetence, partly because of lack of power, uh, the situation was fairly fluid on the ground, which pretty much fit the nature of the societies. And remember, under the Ottoman Empire, you could travel from uh, uh, Cairo uh, to Baghdad to Constantinople uh, without crossing any borders. You didn't need a passport. It's one complex web. Uh, so mentioned, I yeah, I mean, I mean, prof- I mean, Professor Chomsky, it's interesting that you mentioned this. If you go to, if you speak to people who are 80, 90 plus, who are still alive, and the stories they heard from their grandparents, I'm talking about uh, the Levant, uh, I'm talking about, you know, parts of the Muslim world, which was under Ottoman rule. They'll say that, yes, the Ottomans were not perfect. They weren't perfect. They had their many issues. But it was a far better successful model in terms of amalgamating and establishing some relative peace than the nation states that followed after its destruction um and i and 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 many muslims find it unfortunate i myself as a graduate of politics a journalist by profession is of concern that when we even not romanticize or nostalgia but when you talk about real facts and that is that the ottomans managed to keep peace and stability in a region which now, after its destruction, has been marred by war and invasion and occupation. And it's a sentiment which millions of Muslims have. Do you feel that it's understandable why many Muslims would have that sentiment when they look back at Ottoman, the Ottoman period and compare it to the situation of the Middle East and North Africa over the last 90 years? Well, I think the picture that you're describing uh, from people my age, incidentally, so something I can remember, is partially romanticized. It wasn't that pretty, but there's a lot of truth to it. It is true that the complex mosaic of cultures, uh, societies that constitutes the region was left pretty much in place. You could move from one place to another you could control your own local affairs pretty well. Now that, I think, makes sense. I've long believed that uh, we should be moving, take the Israel-Palestine conflict. I think the only real hope for any sensible solution for that is within the framework of a regional integration, which uh, softens and erodes the national borders that were imposed by imperial power. Remember, the borders are all artificial. Uh, When I crossed into Lebanon 70 years ago, I 
I was crossing an artificial border. At that point, it wasn't even marked. Uh, and that's not that far from the time that these people you're talking about were um, thinking about. Mm. And that's what it should go back to. It doesn't make any, these, these lines in the, on the border make no sense from the point of view of the people living there. Mm. Uh, they were imposed by imperial force for the benefit of the imperial powers in that region, mostly France and Britain. And it's causing enormous difficulties. You can groups that don't belong together fighting each other. Mm. Groups that do belong together blocked by borders. I mean, it's an unnatural system. How unnatural it is, we can see from the history of Europe. Remember that it took centuries of violent, bloody, murderous conflict for those borders to be, for the nation states of Europe to be established. They didn't just come like that. I mean, the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century mm. killed about a third of the population of Germany, what's now Germany, okay? It wasn't peaceful. Uh, two world wars weren't peaceful. Those were the efforts to establish the borders of what are now European states. And in fact, very quickly, sensibly, after the last great mutual slaughter, Europe began to move towards somewhat eroding those borders, which are not natural borders. None of them are, like neither the one that's a couple of miles south of me. That's a, not a natural border either. It's imposed by imperial violence. Okay, and it, they should be eroded. But we do want what was more positive about the Ottoman Empire, namely the local independence and freedom and the uh, absence of artificial boundaries. That's the favorable part, kind of like the Schengen Agreement in Europe, the favorable part of the European Union. There's also high, highly negative parts, like the centralization of power out of popular control. Colour would be another form of that. So I don't think any of these, all of these systems have elements that are worth pursuing other elements that should be abandoned and eliminated. Okay. But we shouldn't live under the illusion that the na nation state was some natural state of human beings. It's a recent development created by horrendous war and violence, and it doesn't answer to people's needs. Professor Noam Chomsky, it was an absolute pleasure speaking to you this evening. Um, you know, thank you very much for giving your time. Um, I'm very sorry that we couldn't have you on for longer, but the time that you did give us, we were very honoured to have you on. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Was, thank you very much. Brothers and sisters, I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Blood Brothers podcast. Professor Chomsky had a lot to say, a lot to take in. Uh, please remember to like this video, share this video, Subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel, leave a comment. For those of you who want to listen to this podcast on the audio channels, visit the Mad Mamluks. And until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Blood Burma's podcast of Five Pillars Mad Mamluks production.